Now that this week in history is history, it's time to sit back, relax, and relive the week that was in U.S. history class. Coming to you live from 185, Mr. Palumbo is ready to take you on a journey into the past to understand the present and change the future. This is Pushcast. Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Palumbo. Welcome to the Pushcast for this first week of February. 2019. Uh, continuing on our work from last week, we looked at the causes of the Civil War, things that led uh, the South to want to secede from the Union, uh, thus kicking off the Civil War. Uh, we're going to jump in, feet first, into all things uh, Civil War this week. Um, we'll, we'll begin with um, some of the reasons why the North wanted to enter the war, uh, their reasons for it, Lincoln's reasons for it. We'll uh, check out each side, advantages and disadvantages, a tell the tape, if you will. Some new technologies uh, that are going to be introduced uh, before and during the war. They'll have an impact on it. And then finally, we're going to wrap the week up um, with uh, the end of the war. And we're going to start to get into um, reconstruction and what needs to be done to, to put North and South back together again. Uh, we began the week on Monday, checking out uh, each side uh, before the war begins. Um, the North and the South, uh, trying to get some advantages and disadvantages of each. And as I said, a, a, a tell of the tape, if you will. You're almost like a, a pregame before you know, a basketball or football game. You look at each side, advantages and disadvantages, and um, what each side does well. Uh, we did that for the North and the South. <coughs> um, the main um, difference, obviously, between the two that we see is, is their economy. You know, the North being more industrial, uh, factory-based, and the South uh, being agricultural, mainly due to their to their climate and geographic uh, condition down there. Um, we saw a graph that was really stark um, and showed us those major advantages the North had um, in, in manufacturing, banking, population, uh, iron production, miles of railroad tracks, on and on. Just the tremendous advantage that the North has going into uh, the Civil War. And it's, um, you know, how technology affects different societies and new technological developments, um, either positively or negatively. And war um, is one instance where uh, we see that happen a lot. There's a lot of examples of those, either whether it's new weapons, uh, new transportation systems, um, you know, things like that. So, you know, in 10th grade, the students would have got a lot of that for World War One. you know, with the tank and the machine gun and mustard gas. Uh, World War Two, we see that uh, with nuclear weapons and, and how that impacts the Cold War to follow. Um, the Civil War here is going to be no different. Um, this is the first war really we're going to have after and during the Industrial Revolution. So there's going to be a lot of um, new technologies that are going to play uh, a key role, um, and particularly in those two fields of um, weapons and transportation. Uh, we started looking at two different transportation systems and their impact on the war. We looked at the Erie Canal first. Um, even though that's open in 1825, you know, 35 years before the war begins, um, just the system of canals in general that the North has is their advantage. Um, is something worth looking at, and obviously the Erie Canal being something local and near to us. We'll a little more in depth into it, um, just so the students can understand its uh, historical importance and, and significance. From there, we moved on to uh, railroads, particularly the Transcontinental Railroad, um, which is being built uh, during the Civil War and is going to be finished after the Civil War. Uh, but again, it's just an example of uh, the industrial might and advantage of the North that they're able to produce, you know, so many miles of railroad track um, and connect the coasts with the Transcontinental Railroad. 
from there, once we had each side um, kind of laid out and understood the advantages of each, um, we moved on to um, getting the war started itself. Um, we spent a lot of time the previous week with the southern cause of the war, the, the reason why the South seceded you know, from their own words. But we didn't really look at um, the reason why Lincoln wanted to go to war. You know, we knew the fact that the South seceded um, and southern states left you know, over the issue of slavery and fear that Lincoln would try to get rid of their slaves. We got that from their own words um, from the numerous primary source documents last week. But um, we haven't heard from Lincoln yet why he didn't just let them go. You know, if he just let them go. Um, so what's the North motivation here? Um, from there, we turn to, um, again, the man himself. Uh, we look to Lincoln. So again, it's not us teachers, it's not textbooks, it's not, uh, you know, videos online or anything like that that's, you know, telling us what these people wanted to do. Uh, we're going to hear directly from them. Uh, we read a letter uh, from Lincoln uh, that was published in the newspaper, August of 1862, uh, where he lays out to his friend Horace Greeley, uh, he lays out his reasons for the war. Um, and in that, in this relatively short letter, um, he uses the phrase seven different times. And we actually made a word cloud of it. Uh, for class. Uh, um, and the word cloud we made, the two words that jumped out at us were save union. Uh, he uses the exact phrase save the union seven different times in this relatively short letter. Right? He says, if I could save the union and free some of the slaves, I would. If I could save the union and free all of the slaves, I would. If I could save the union and free none of the slaves, I would. You know, saying over and over and over again, his main goal here is to save the union keep the union together. Um, so Lincoln feels he has this constitutional obligation uh, as president of the United States uh, to hold the country together. So, you know, a number of southern states leaving or seceding, uh, that's not acceptable. Um, he is president, can't let that happen. So very clearly, uh, we learn Lincoln's reasons for going to war there is to save the union, keep the union together. Um, once we had uh, the North's reason for war, obviously we had the South's reasons for war, um, we're ready for the war itself to begin. Uh, we don't spend a ton of time in uh, 11th grade U.S. history on the specific battles themselves, uh, you know, troop movements and different generals and things like that. You know, 7th or excuse me, 8th grade rather, um, they generally cover a little bit more of that stuff. You know, but as, you know, being juniors and juniors in high school here, we try to be, go a little more in depth, some more higher order thinking. Um, so while other classes and there's other opportunities for you on your own to go out and look at the the who, the when, the where, the what, of not just a civil war, but really any historical event, we want to dig a lot deeper. We want to look at the how and the why. So while we looked at some key battles, um, and we got down, you know, dates and some key facts for those, um, just for perspective and to keep a timeline in our heads, you know, we're, we're really interested in, in the why. What's the big impact of these? You know, why were they important? So we start out with the very first battle of the war, the Battle of Fort Sumter in uh, August of 1861 uh, down in South Carolina. A uh, Confederate victory, not a real big battle, um, nothing of any terrible significance other than that it was the first battle of the war. It's the first shots fired um, between North and South. Uh, and the Confederates are able to capture a, um, a key fort uh, down there in South Carolina. Moving on from it, uh, we moved on to the um, a next uh, key battle in the war. Uh, we're jumping ahead quite a bit in our timeline uh, to September of 1862. This was the Battle of Antietam. A reason why the Battle of Antietam is a important battle, um, an important event for the war, and one worth um, us covering. Um, it's the deadliest day in American history, uh, the Battle of Antietam. Um, so on that date, 
uh, September 17th. Uh, more Americans were killed on this day than any other. Uh, more than 9-11, more than Pearl Harbor, more than D-Day. 3,600 uh, Americans were killed at this battle. Uh, naturally, because it's a civil war, any death um, on either side is going to be considered an American death. You know, so that's going to obviously add to the add to the total. There, you're comparing the two different sides. But um, again, 3,600 people killed in one day, a, an incredibly large number. Um, just for a comparison, uh, I gave to the students a modern day one. The United States has been fighting the war in Iraq uh, since 2003. You know, almost as long as my students have been alive, almost their entire lives, uh, we've been in Iraq, um, and there have been 4,400 uh, troops killed in that 16 years. Uh, we've been in Iraq, and here we have 3,600 killed uh, just in one day at the Battle of Antietam. Um, and a reason for this is it connects back to some of those new technologies um, that we'd covered in the previous days. Um, you know, one of the new technologies we looked at was um, something called the mini ball, uh, which is a, a new cone-shaped bullet uh, that was a lot more accurate over a longer distance. Um, and that combined with, you know, traditional military tactics, you know, large groups standing shoulder to shoulder um, on open battlefields led to just tremendous amounts of, of death and carnage. Um, you know, these military uh, commanders weren't, weren't quite used to this, this new technology yet and hadn't quite changed their tactics. Um, so we saw just incredible bloodshed um, all throughout the Civil War uh, because of it, the mix of new technologies and, you know, older tactics. Back to the Battle of Antietam itself, um, this is a major Union victory. Uh, that's important because um, Abraham Lincoln is waiting to make a major announcement. He's waiting to give um, his famous Emancipation Proclamation. He wants to have a major Union victory um, to build up some goodwill uh, before he does that, before he makes that announcement. Um, and the Battle of Antietam is it. Um, so he's going to, um, that's going to, to push him you know, to issue the Emancipation Proclamation um, after this major Union victory at Antietam. Now, the Emancipation Proclamation itself um, tremendously important for us in our history. Um, we actually save it for the following day um, so we can give it its its due and uh, spend enough time with it uh, to really break it down, help the students understand it um, so you guys can understand it a lot better. That's why we saved it to the next day. So we just kind of mentioned it um, in connection with the Battle of Antietam, um, but we'll get into it later. The next major battle uh, to look at for the Civil War that we did was the Battle of Gettysburg in uh, July of 1863, a three-day battle um, over the first three days of July. Uh, this is the deadliest battle of the war in that uh, 7,000 people were killed at this battle um, over the course of three days. Again, to put it in a more modern perspective uh, for students to understand, um, if we combined um, the troop losses in the battle the troop losses in the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan, which started in 2001, so longer than these students have been alive, um, almost 18 years' worth um, in two wars. Uh, the United States, we lost 7,500 troops um, in those two wars combined uh, over the past 18 years. Um, and here we have 7,000 killed um, in just three days at Gettysburg. This was a turning point of the war. And just geographically, we pointed out where Gettysburg is um, in Pennsylvania and how far north that is um, compared to a lot of the other major battles of the war, just to show how far the Confederate Army um, had advanced itself. And the, you know, Lee's Army in Northern Virginia, how far north they had gotten. 
Um, so this is a major turning point, and then it was a Union victory, able to uh, to turn the tides a little bit and to push the Confederates back south after this major, major Union victory. So that's one of the major um, importances of uh, the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, another, um, as we were talking about it, some students had mentioned, oh, the Gettysburg Address. While not given immediately afterwards, uh, the Gettysburg Address given four months later. Um, again, another really important document from our history. Um, and one that we wanted to spend some extra time with, so we combined it with the Emancipation Proclamation uh, to cover both of those documents exclusively uh, the following day. The Emancipation Proclamation and the Gettysburg Address. So we spent um, roughly half the class on each one. Started, there's chronologically, with the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, reviewed a little bit that it uh, you know, came after the Battle of Antietam. Uh, we gave students two excerpts. Or we gave the students, we gave you guys two excerpts from the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, first, we had to define what that word means, to emancipate. That might be a new one for a lot of students. So some folks looked it up on their devices. Some people knew what it was anyway. But to emancipate, um, we found just mean to set free or to set someone free. Um, and obviously, for our purposes here in class, we're talking about slaves. But that really is kind of what I... Um, I told the class, is kind of like your eighth grade definition of what the Emancipation Proclamation was. You know, it freed the slaves. Um, looking more into it and actually reading the document itself, I wanted the students to know what exactly it said. Who, what slaves uh, did it free? And it certainly didn't free all slaves. Um, looking at the document itself, Lincoln tells us. He lays out this plan here. Um, he says, all persons held as slaves within any state or part of a state where the people shall be in rebellion against the United States, uh, shall then be forever free. Um, so to put that in more layman's terms, uh, basically, slaves are only freed if they're in a state that rebelled against the United States. So only those states that seceded um, were ones that were going to lose their slaves. Uh, we have a collection of what are known as border states, uh, states that own slaves uh, but didn't break away from the Union, didn't secede. They're not mentioning They're able to keep their slaves. All right, so this document, the Emancipation Proclamation, doesn't free all slaves, right? But it's, it's a great start. Uh, Lincoln pitches this as it's a military move. He's doing this for military reasons, uh, not so much for moral ones. He cites in there that he's con the commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy, that, and that gives him the power to do this. He states that those uh, freed slaves will be welcomed into uh, the Union Army. Um, so that'll help to add 20,000 troops, or excuse me, 200,000 troops uh, to the Union war effort. So a really great military move in that respect. He finishes with explaining you know, what type of work uh, these former slaves will be doing. Uh, he says they'll be garrisoning forts and stations and, and manning vessels and doing all sorts of other services uh, within the Union Army. And, and the students noticed one thing that was missing uh, was fighting. He doesn't mention in there that the these former slaves will be invited to fight in the Union Army, not just work in the Union Army. And that's because Lincoln has a, a delicate balancing act here. He wants to you know, free the slaves, obviously, as a military move, but he doesn't want to offend those border states. You know, having uh, freed slaves and having them in uniform, that's one thing. Uh, but maybe for those border states, you know, seeing those, those troops carrying weapons and, and being trained to fight, um, that could be a little bit too much for them. Uh, he doesn't want to go too far right away. Um, you know, baby steps here, if you will. So the Emancipation Proclamation, um, again, just a quick summary. Free slaves um, in the states that rebelled invites uh, former slaves to join the Union Army as a, 
There's a military move here. It's a great military move freeing the slaves, um, but doesn't quite let them fight yet. Uh, by war's end, these former slaves, so these black troops in the Union Army, uh, will be trained and, and uh, will actually go into battle um, towards the end of the war, but, but not right away. The second document that we took care of this day was the Gettysburg Address. The Gettysburg Address, a very short speech, only 272 words. Uh, takes Lincoln about two and a half minutes uh, to get through this speech, but again, one of the most famous speeches in history, given four months after the Battle of Gettysburg. It's called the Gettysburg Address because it happens at the battlefield where the battle took place. Um, he does it to dedicate a uh, cemetery at Gettysburg for those 7,000 killed there, um, dedicate a Union Cemetery. As the story goes, so when Lincoln arrives in, in November, uh, November 19th, 1862, four months after the battle, there are still uh, bodies left unburied. That was just the sheer, you know, amount of the carnage here. In those four months, they still couldn't get, you know, everybody buried in time for the president's visit and the dedication of the cemetery. We hadn't listened to the Gettysburg Address, because it's a speech, that's how it's meant to be taken in. So we said students follow along um, with a copy of their own underline, any key phrases or words or things that sounded familiar, things they had questions about, things we could talk about once the, the, the two and a half minute you know, re restatement of the speech was done. Some of the lines students um, highlighted, obviously the very first line of the speech is a famous one, four score and seven years ago. Students knew that was a number of some sort, and he was referring to, you know, sometime um, a certain number of years ago, but uh, couldn't quite crack it. So we did a little math formula there, explained that a score is a, a unit of time, which equals 20 years. So four scores, uh, so four times 20 is 80, and seven years ago, so adding seven is 87 years ago. So he was referring to something that happened 87 years ago, um, which led us to do some more math. Uh, this was given in 1863, so 1863 minus 87 gives, brings us to 1776. Um, so it's a real fancy way of saying back in 1776. He's referring to, obviously, um, the sign of the Declaration of Independence. Um, and he ends that four score and seven years ago sentence with the proposition that all men are created equal. So obviously borrowing that all men are created equal phrase from the Declaration itself. All right, so making another call back to it. Bringing us down to the, the end of the speech, um, there were a couple of um, phrases I asked the students to highlight. Um, we asked the students to highlight the unfinished work, the phrase, the great task remaining before us, the cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. These three phrases are referring to the same thing, unfinished work, great task remaining. Right, what is that unfinished work he's talking about? And and we identified it as meaning um, ending slavery, right? We did it part of the way with the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, but now there's this unfinished work to do. The great task remaining before us, right, is to free the rest of the slaves, right, to end slavery fully in the United States. Uh, so here Lincoln is finally giving a, a moral uh, purpose to the war, a moral reason to want to free the slaves. So no longer is the war about uh, saving the Union, keeping the country together. Um, it's about ending slavery. So that's um, that's the reason why this the Gettysburg Address is one of the most famous in history. Um, you know, he's saying for the first time, the reason these hundreds of thousands of people are being killed in this war, we're doing it to end slavery. We're doing it to free slaves. That's going to be the Union's purpose. From there, um, after we broke down those two very important documents in American history, we moved to end the war. Um, the, the following day, we came back. Um, we started, um, unfortunately, with 
uh, Lincoln's assassination. Um, going more in depth into that for some students, I think they understand that you know he was assassinated. Some people remember John Wilkes Booth, uh, the guy's name, but the larger conspiracy surrounding it um, was kind of new to some of the students. Uh, we shared with them a book that we have tons of copies of, called "Chasing Lincoln's Killer." That we invited, you know, if students wanted to borrow it and bring it home, they could read more about it and get more into it. Um, and anyone listening is free to uh, stop by the room and uh, borrow one as well if they would like. Um, so we just shared that as kind of an interesting, you know, story for the students there. Um, and we wrapped up thoughts for the end of the war. Um, the very last, you know, bit of words of Lincoln that we looked at um, were a very small selection from his second inaugural address um, where he explains how he wants the South treated after the war is over. Uh, he's going to give this speech five or six weeks uh, before the war is to end. Um, so he's, he has that in his mind and how he wants uh, the South to be treated and welcome back. Uh, basically, he wants them welcome back uh, peacefully and with open arms, you know, with malice towards none, he says. Um, he wants to help bind the nation's wounds and create a just and lasting peace. And he thinks that we need to do that by welcoming the South and um, doing the best we can to, to put the nation back together again. Um, not by punishing the South overly harshly or, or coming down hard on them for, for seceding from the Union that could create too much ill will and, and could lead to future conflicts. So that gets us into uh, really the start of the next unit, which we're able to begin on Friday. Uh, that's the unit of reconstruction or putting the nation back together again. Um, not physically as far as you know, rebuilding buildings and bridges and things like that, but uh, rebuilding that relationship between the North and the South. Um, and with Lincoln having been assassinated um, and going with him are those those thoughts of, um, you know, welcoming the South back and, and the man that would put those plans into action. We had to look at who was going to carry out these reconstruction plans. Um, so we looked at both um, main players involved here that are left to, left to handle this. Uh, one being Lincoln's vice president and the new president of the United States, Andrew Johnson, and the other being um, a group of what we call radical Republicans in Congress. Uh, so is it going to be the president's uh, responsibility to put these plans into action, or is it going to be Congress's responsibility to put these plans into action? Um, and we looked at um, each of their plans. So President Johnson, um, his is very much uh, similar to what President Lincoln wants to do, um, you know, welcome the South back. And um, basically, people just have to give a simple loyalty pledge back to the Union, and their crimes will be forgiven, they'll get their property back, um, and everything will be, you know, hunky-dory again. Uh, whereas those in Congress um, are going to be a little more harsh towards, um, there's going to be more conditions. Um, their states are going to be forced to uh, agree to the 14th Amendment, um, which makes all African-American citizens. Um, they're going to be forced to allow um, African-Americans um, into their governments and into their constitutional conventions and be a part of um, establishing their new states um, in the South before they're allowed back in the Union. Um, so things that sound pretty obvious today um, and would make sense and seem fair and equal, um, again, back then are going to seem extremely harsh to the South um, and seen as very punitive and um, really tough for them to swallow. Um, so if you hold the two plans side by side, you know, the president's one is going to be more favorable for the South and one that um, they'd more likely agree to. Um, and the one put forward by the radical Republicans in Congress um, is going to be one that they're really, the South is really going to have a hard time with. 
that wraps up uh, the week that was in U.S. history. We covered a ton here. Um, there are whole graduate-level college courses and volumes and volumes of books written on the stuff that we've covered here in, in 20 or so minutes, and we covered in five days in class. But with that, thank you very much for listening, and uh, remember to subscribe, tell others to subscribe, and uh, check back next week. Bye-bye. You've enjoyed this look back into the week that was in U.S. history. The goal, as always, is to be enlightened. If not enlightened, at least entertained. And if not entertained, at least not annoyed. Now go grab that PS4 or Xbox, jump on Snap, Twitter, or Insta, and keep those streaks alive. While there, follow Mr. P on Twitter at Mr. P underscore Newark. And remember, this isn't just his story or her story, it's your story too.